Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I went to a small Catholic liberal arts college on the West Coast and was not Catholic when I went there, uh, or even Christian. I was a chemistry major and uh, got interested in philosophy in my junior year, and uh, through philosophy entered the church. And it really was, at that time, I knew my professors were Christians, and I said, I think I'll do philosophy anyway because I really love philosophy, and I'll just ignore all of that Christianity nonsense, as I thought at the time. It was really Nietzsche that got me interested in philosophy. And after a year or so of studying, the more I you know, formed my intellect, the more I thought on these questions, the more I saw them pointing me toward the answers that I was finding in the Bible. So from, from there, eventually entering the church, and I know that at Franciscan, you have uh, nine credits in philosophy that are required. And I'm sure that for some of you, it's this sort of like, why, why do we have to do so much philosophy at a Catholic school? I have seminarians at St. Vincent, and they have to do the equivalent of a major in philosophy. And some of these guys are in their 30s and their 40s. We get Steubenville Diocese guys on occasion, and they have the same question that you do. <laughs> you know, why do we have to do, why is the church requiring so much philosophy? And one of the things that we'll be seeing tonight is that philosophy really helps us to make careful distinctions thinking very carefully about difficult questions. And we're going to look at one of those, I think, tonight. And another one is in terms of evangelization. As I tell my seminarians that even in the parish, when you are preaching, it is not enough to tell them what church teaching is. Chances are they already know that on something like contraception or abortion or another issue. They are not simply going to say, that's church teaching, I'll accept it. Even if they are going to Catholic church, if they're lifelong Catholics, there's a decent chance that they are not following church teaching and they are looking for reasons. You need to be able to meet them where they are. And philosophy is that space where we can meet those who do not share the faith and dialogue uh, with them. So when I think on my book, what I'm trying to write, it's a, it's a book that is written for people who have taken perhaps an introduction to philosophy class, like philosophy of the human person, or an introduction to ethics class in a philosophy or in a theology classroom, and is going on to the next kind of level, looking at Catholic social thought, moral questions, economic questions, and political questions. So if I come here to Franciscan University of Steubenville and talk to students who are, most of you, not philosophy majors, I take it, and you have no idea, this is all foreign jargon, that I'm in trouble, because <laughs> my book is written for this, this type of reader, and also seminarians. Um, so, the um, so I'm going to pitch things, hopefully, right at your level here. What I want to start at is this passage, Catechism 2446. So it's toward the back of this handout. So the title of my book, first part, is Justice and Charity. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about justice this evening. Um, and a central part of this is that what the church has for us, and this is why philosophy is so important, is the recognition that there are many good things, virtues, or uh, you know, ethical way of living that people can have without revelation. You know, that those who have goodwill, uh, people of goodwill, can pursue justice, can pursue um, hospitality or liberality, courage, moderation, and so forth. 
And that charity is where the leaven of Christ comes in, that charity builds upon justice. So justice is something that we'd say that any human being uh, can, can pursue justice in common, religious or, or non-religious. And that living in a nation like America, one that is not confessional, you know, we're not a Catholic country, uh, but we are a country that says, look, we want to promote justice. That a central part of a government is to promote justice, as distinct from charity. Okay, so there's this nice clear line, it seems to us, that you know, we want the government to help promote justice, and then charity comes in and goes beyond that. And that seems simple enough, but if we look at the catechism and start thinking about this, we say, boy, maybe, maybe I'm not quite sure. Where does justice end and charity begin? So look at 2446. And we're taking this out of context. We'll come back to the context later. St. John Chrysostom vigorously recalls this. Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. The demands of justice must be satisfied first of all. That which is already due in justice is not to be offered as a gift of charity. When we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. This is a pretty striking passage uh, that if there are people in want in our community, I'm inclined to think, and I, I bet you are too, that if I'm walking down downtown Steubenville and I see homeless people, and I say, well, I'm going to give them some of my money or some food or whatever it may be, I am doing something that's beyond justice, right? I don't owe them this money. This is mercy. This is charity. This is Christian love. It goes beyond justice, it seems. But here's the catechism telling us that no, if people are in need and are going without, they are owed what you call yours. It's actually theirs. And that's pretty strong, right? This is an act of justice. And if we think then in terms of politics, if this is about justice, wouldn't we go on from there to argue that the government should be redistributing the goods of the community, taking from those who have more than they need, and giving to those who are in need? Because that's what justice demands, says the church. Generally, people who um, are focused on social justice, uh, Catholics who really focus on social justice, have a very strong view of what the state should be doing. That the state, following Catholic Church teaching, they claim, uh, should be making sure that everybody has enough basic goods, redistributing the goods of the community so that the poor have enough. And we call this social justice. So oftentimes when Catholics talk about social Catholic thought, they reduce it just to social justice. And you could take a passage like this. Isn't the church telling us that the job of government, the job of anyone pursuing justice, is to redistribute goods. Christianity is something beyond that, perhaps. But it's not a Christian call for justice. It's, a, it's just a generically human one. So how are we going to address that kind of interpretation? So we're going to come back to that kind of question here about what exactly is the catechism saying here? Because I, I have a different interpretation I'm going to offer um, at the end. But I want us to start thinking just first about justice itself. So what is justice? This is a, if you've taken a philosophy class, hopefully you've been asked this question before. What is justice? 
Let's start with a, a first one here, a kind of a contractual understanding. If you and I enter into an exchange, it would be unjust if you take what is not yours. If you borrow something from me and you don't give it back, this is clearly an injustice. So on one level, justice is giving back things you've borrowed or paying an equal amount in an exchange. Right, that seems, seems fair enough. But let's think of some examples that might complicate that. What do you think about this? Let's imagine that you have a, um, you're having a garage sale, or I'm having a garage sale, and you come by and you look at some of my items and you see an original Vincent Van Gogh painting signed by Van Gogh himself. And I just, I don't know, just some copy somebody gave it to me. I don't know its value. And you say, well, what do you want for it? And I say, I, I don't know, like 20 bucks? And you're thinking, this thing's worth thousands of dollars. But I agree to it, and you agree to it. Does that seem just to you? So you know that it's worth much more than that. I don't know that. But we agree to the terms, right? I mean, it's, it's, you, you know, we don't, we, you don't force me, you know? I don't have to sell it to you. Does that seem just? What do you think? What do you think? Anyone tell me what you think? You think, would this seem like you have treated me fairly if you did this? Yes, Miss? I feel like this would be more fair if you at least told them that you strong, had reason to strongly believe that this is actually genuine. Okay. Yeah, so you think you have an obligation to tell me that this is, this is something worth more than what it is. You think so? Okay. Um, Why does obligation seem tricky? I guess the whole thing is rather tricky. I guess I would rather, if you, you know what, our definition of justice is, yeah, that would be just, but then if you think of it too as and you're giving a person what they're due, what they're owed, then I think that it would be good for you to inform them. Okay, yeah. So I like this. You're trying to think of obligation maybe more in a legal sense, it sounds like, to say that you know, legally speaking, I'm maybe not obligated to tell you. You know, you're not obligated to tell me. Like, you know, the law, I, you can't uh, bring in a judge here, you know, in the sense that legally speaking, I don't have to reveal it to you, perhaps. I don't know the laws of Ohio, you know, and you'd have to look at the law book. But we can recognize that probably in a lot of human societies, all they demand in justice is this kind of contractual language of justice, that you have been just as long as you signed a contract, it wasn't coercive, there was disclosure in the sense that if you know, I knew it was really a forgery and you were thinking it's an original, you know, that I would be deceiving you in some, in some way. Um, but on some level, we could call that justice if we obey the law together. We make an exchange, we both obey the law, you know, that, that seems to be justice. This is what the catechism calls a contractualist vision of justice. It's a very limited one. It's not absolutely speaking wrong, but I think you're trying to use this language of what I owe to somebody seems a little bit more than just bare minimum of the law, just, just following the law. I mean, kind of think of the, you know, the lawyer who, who gets the guy off the hook because he didn't technically do anything illegal. And it seems like there's something more to, to justice than that. Okay, so, all right, first we'd say there's something about exchange here, that if you and I enter into exchange, that I owe you something or you owe me something based on maybe the value of the object. Well, what about this? Let's imagine we go to a restaurant, and in America we have this custom of tipping. That's something that we do in our country. Not every country do you do this. Let's imagine I go to the restaurant, you're the waitress, you do a good service, and I don't tip you. I just walk out, I don't pay a tip. 
Have I treated you unjustly? What do you think? Does that seem like that's an injustice? I mean, are you owed a tip? Here, server. Does it seem like you're owed that? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. You guys have some hurt. Some, yes. Do, are, do some of you work in this industry? And this is. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Yeah, and right behind you, some young. Yeah. Like, because you said in other countries they don't tip. Well, that the service acts, the service acts differently then. Like, yeah. they know they're not being tipped. They're not working harder for that extra money. So in America, yeah. they actually work harder to get more tips. So mm -hmm. it would kind of be unjust not to, like, give them something for their hard work. Okay, yeah, so, and this is state by state, by the way. In some states, servers get minimum wage at least, and others, you can do this 2 to $3 an hour. So that would also be a factor, right, is that how much is this person making? Um, I like how you're both appealing to this social expectation, that part of the expectation societally is that when you go to a restaurant, their livelihood depends upon your tip. That's what makes their, their how much they make just, is that they get tips from you. But the point of this is that, see how this goes beyond the first kind of justice, that it's not about an exchange here. I mean, it kind of is in a way. You gave me a service. But I think we, we think of a tip as something like a kind of gratitude, maybe. Let me call it a gratuity. You know, that I'm doing it out of gratitude. Uh, that I don't owe it to you in the sense of legally binding, um, that the money, like the, the chicken that you gave me was worth that much more percentage than I actually paid for. I think, look, I paid for the chicken. I paid for the bill of the restaurant and the electricity. I paid for all that stuff. I'm doing something, it's a, an act of gratitude. And that seems like a kind of justice, I think you want to say. It goes beyond that, that first sort, you know, the sort of justice of, of gratitude. Okay, so that's the second one. The third one um, came to me actually this last Sunday. So I'm Byzantine Catholic, and the reading for this last Sunday was the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke. And if you look at the Good Samaritan, this should be an example for us. Was the Good Samaritan just or charitable toward the person who had been robbed and left you know, half naked inside the streets? Was this an act of justice or an act of charity? So what do you think about that? If you are walking down the street and I said, you want to jump in already. Give me just a second, OK? Uh, something about Byzantine seemed to really, really get you interested here. Uh, <laughs> this seems to, OK, I'm, I've hit upon something. Um, it, it seems like, look, let's, let's, you know, if I'm walking down the street and you are in a situation of need, is it an injustice if I just go about my way and say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help you right now? Would that be unjust? Or isn't it that if I stop to help you, I've gone beyond justice. I've just, I didn't have to do it. And isn't that part of why you would thank me, is because I didn't have to do it? It's not just a matter of x for y, you know, these things were equal to each other. So what do you think about that one? Does that seem like it goes beyond justice? Maybe get a new person in here. Although I know you really want to jump in. I want to hear from you at some point. So anybody else, what do you think? Does that seem like it would be unjust if you didn't stop and help? Sir, in the corner, yeah? Yeah. 
bunch of guys that are just lying on, on, on the ground. I mean, she's actually knocked out and you're probably dying. Okay. And so just every human being deserves uh, life, deserves health, you know, deserves to be treated with dignity. And it, it seems like it would be an act of justice to help him, at least in the very least, get him somewhere where he can get more help. Okay. Okay, anybody want to disagree with that? Say, I don't think this is, I think this is beyond justice. Again, not, not that we shouldn't do it, right? Not only saying we shouldn't do it, but if someone were to do this, this would be, you know, above justice, like mercy or charity or something that's beyond the, the requirements of justice. Anybody? Yes. Oh, yeah, then, good. Yeah. Yeah, so think of them like uh, the, um, oh, I don't know, the, the police show where, the, you know, or some sort of show where there's a mafia guy and, you know, one of his enemies helped him in the past and now he has him where he wants him. He says, you know, because you took pity on me one time, I'll do it to you. It's just us once, right? It's a kind of justice that even though you know, I want to I do something bad here, I'm paying you back for something I acknowledge you did. That even the hardened criminal has some understanding of justice. That it seems like justice is this, if I've done something, or if I have borrowed something, or if you borrowed from me, there's a kind of payback. It's giving what is owed to another. I don't owe it to you to help you. So wouldn't that be you know, an odd thing if any time somebody's broken down on the highway, every one of us owes it to them to help them? If I'm driving down the road and you're broken down on the side of the road, I don't think I owe it to you to stop. But it might be, if you push back, it's because you say, yeah, he's probably got a cell phone. Or I'm in a hurry to get to work. Or what if this is a person who's actually going to steal my car? This actually happened in our community not too long ago. Uh, someone on the football team uh, had this happen to him. And because he's someone on the football team, it didn't go well for the guy who tried to get his car from him. But you can think, yeah, OK, if I'm driving down the road and I've got kids in the car, I am risking their life to help somebody else. That's different from if I'm on my own. And you know, we could kind of see this, that it kind of depends. But, it seems somewhat on the fence. Because one of the things you have to start being concerned about is when is it going to be charity in your view? It sounds like everything's justice. When will there actually be charity? When's it going to go past that? So an example, my last example here, baby at the doorstep. You know, you wake up, and, then, and believe it or not, something almost sort of similar to this happened to us, where our neighbor wanting to leave their baby at our house. You know, knock on the door, you look outside, here's a baby on my doorstep. You can imagine that person, the contractualist vision of justice, just digging in the heels and saying, I don't think you're obligated to help. You didn't do anything. You didn't choose. It wasn't your decision. Nothing you did brought this baby into your care. It's not your responsibility. And I don't think many or decent human beings want to, would go that far. They might say, OK. I can see why people want to say that, because here's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about, if I admit that it's unjust, then could the police lock me up for not doing it? Or could, there, could we pass a law that if a baby is at your doorstep? And so I'm concerned that as soon as I admit it's just, I'm also saying we have to do it. So thinking, if you want to say it's just, 
it's a requirement of justice that I help someone who's down on his luck on the side of the road. Then if I go by, the police pull me over and they say, you just broke the law. What law? The law that requires you to be just toward your fellow citizens. I say, that, what? Do we really want laws that, that say things like that? Isn't that a bit too much? So with the food example, right, thinking back to the catechism, if on Thanksgiving dinner, if we waste some of our food, I were robbing it, says St. John Chrysostom, from the poor. Do you really want the police to knock at your door on Thanksgiving dinner? Show me your food waste tonight. And if it's, you know, if it's more than a little bit, or if your belly's too full because you were gluttonous, that's unjust, right? So we, we want to be cautious that we don't end up saying, boy, everything is justice, because then we've gone too far. So isn't the baby at the doorstep example important for showing that justice isn't simply about I entered into an agreement, it's about a kind of decency toward other people. I think this gentleman want to use this language of, of, of decency, of respect for dignity between all people. But so this just returns us to our question, what exactly is mine and what is yours? If it's the case in all of these examples that something that looks like mine, my free time at the very least, um, my resources, the baby at the doorstep, my, my money at the restaurant, if all of those are things that are not really mine, that I owe them to you, how do we decide what is mine and what is yours? So now what we can look at is the beginning of that selection from the catechism. There's a section on property. Twenty-four oh two. Let's just read that. In the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, master them by labor, and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. However, the earth is divided up among men to assure the security of their lives, endangered by poverty and threatened by violence. The appropriation of property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of persons and for helping each of them to meet his basic needs and in the needs of those in his charge. It should allow for a natural solidarity to develop between men. The right to private property, acquired or received in a just way, does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of mankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its exercise. And this is a quote from Aquinas, and my book is mostly focused on, on Aquinas. So this is straight out of Aquinas. In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns, not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. The ownership of any property makes its holder a steward of providence with the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits to others. First of all, his family. And I think that's important, the first of all, his family. So what is the catechism telling us? What is the Catholic social thought view on property? Is that God did not break up the earth into yours and yours and mine. We did. Does that mean it's illegitimate? No. Does not make it illegitimate. Why is it legitimate to have property? Because God gave us our reasoning ability. Humans in communities recognize the problems of having everything in common. Uh, so my, this morning when I'm taking my son to his doctor's office, we're driving in a relatively country road and the stop sign has a huge uh, shotgun blast you know, hole in the side of it. And two days ago it was not there. And um, so he says, 
My son, he's 14, you know, he says something like, what a terrible way to waste your own property. You know, it's the kind of understanding that, that we, we pay the tax money, and it's, so it's our property. You know, the government is for us. And say, yeah, but you've got to think about this. I mean, if I go blow a hole in a sign for fun and I have to pay a tenth of a cent in recovery costs for it, that's a little different than I have to pay $500 for it, right? When we all own it, none of us own it. So Aquinas points out that people don't care for things as much if they don't own it. Private property, and there are other reasons that he gives about justice, private property is the best way to ensure the good of the society. But notice the focus, unlike in modern societies, we tend to talk about individuals. It's the best way to secure your own self-interest. What Aquinas is talking about in the church here is that private property is the best way to secure our good as members of the community. So the goods that you have have been entrusted to you to help benefit the community. And the term that's used is superabundance. The things that you have in superabundance, and if you, we could go to Q&A later if you want to ask, well, what is superabundance as distinct from just abundance? The things you have in superabundance are given to you to give to others in need. And that's we get back to 2446. If you have things in superabundance, you know, clothes in your closet you don't plan on wearing, pairs of shoes you're never going to wear, uh, you know, food that goes to waste. These were things that were never really yours. You were a steward given them to care for others. Okay? And that is justice. You know, is that the things that you have are there to give to your community. So isn't that what 2446 is referring to? Is that it's true that human society does need to just say things like this. Um, if people are in need, they can't just come into my house and take the clothes out of my closet. <laughs> it is mine in some sense of the word, right? But in another sense of the word, it is theirs. We've got to make that distinction, right? There is a sense in which it's mine, but a sense in which it's theirs. Aquinas goes so far as to say that if you were in a situation of dire need, Let's go back to that contractual vision. Let's imagine we're out here in this area 200 years ago, very little food supply. I own all the corn, and all of your crops have failed. It's all mine. Do I owe you any of that? On the contractual vision, I, it's mine. If you want to buy it, you, you can buy it. And the price is what I deem it to be, because you really need it. Um, and if you take it, you're stealing from me. But on Aquinas's and on the church's understanding, if you are in a situation of need, utter need, you can rightfully take somebody else's property to satisfy your basic needs. He even goes so far as to say you could take the property of another to give to somebody else in need. So my campus is surrounded by cornfields. So this is really helpful, easy for me to think of. Let's imagine you know, I am walking through by the cornfields on my way home, and um, I notice somebody in utter need, I mean, utterly going to die. This is St. Vincent corn. It's not my corn. It becomes, through natural law, mine to give to them. Those are pretty, this goes pretty far, because we could see why might we be, my, why might it be that we don't want human laws to allow for that? Why would we want human laws to say no exceptions? If it's his, it's his. If it's yours, it's yours, yeah. Yeah, how do we know that? So, I mean, thinking of the, the, again, the Good Samaritan issue or the beggar, how do I know this isn't some trick? 
how do I know this supposedly homeless beggar doesn't have a nicer home than me? Or is he going to get his cell phone out and make some phone calls? How do I know that he really needs it? And further, aren't we pretty bad when judging our own interests? Right? So asking myself if I need some ice cream at 10 o'clock at night is probably not the good time to ask that question. Right? I kind of say, OK, when I get up in the morning, I should ask myself, do I need some ice cream tonight? Or do I need you know, these things tonight? But when I'm in the heat of passion or of desire, I'm a pretty poor judge. So you can imagine how many of us would say, boy, I really needed that car. <laughs> I really, really needed that object that I took. Uh, so we wouldn't really want human laws to allow this, even though we acknowledge that this is naturally just, as the, as the catechism talks about. All right. So, Value. When let's talk about value, and then we're going to look at this little chart uh, that I that I handed out. How we determine the value of objects, and we already kind of got at this with this Van Gogh example. That the idea is that there is a kind of natural value. That the value of earthly goods is a measure of how helpful, how conducive they are to happiness. How necessary these objects are to building up a, a community rooted in virtue. And so if we look at objects like water, that's an obvious example. You know that water is value at all times. But there is also something Aquinas thinks called conventional value, right? That there is a value objects have in various communities. Things, for example, corn might be very scarce in one place and not another. And so determining what the value is is not that easy. It's hard to say what is it in, in general. But the, the thing we want to recognize in value is, first of all, if I am in dire need of something, it is unjust to charge me more for that object as a result of that need. You know, the, the value of the object is not a measure of how badly I need it. And that's a way of, you can imagine, you know, you are all heading through the desert. You've got no water. And I got a little water stand. You know, I just set it up just, just in the right place in the middle of the desert. I got my water stand here. And it's a million dollars a bottle. And you say, that's unfair. And I say, you can go tell that to you know, somebody else. But if you want the water, it's a million dollars. Do you want it or not? You say, well, I, <laughs> I really need it. Which would you rather have, a million dollars or die? This seems unjust, right? That value can't be just, well, you really need it. And this is also a way of getting it back to the example of the tips. You know, that all humans, as in terms of work being the means by which they provide their own livelihood, are owed a living wage. If we're living in a factory town where you know that I will take any job I can get, no matter how low the price, the catechism you can see in that passage says, you have defrauded me of my just wages. So just the fact that you and I agree to the contract doesn't automatically make it just. Okay? That it also has to reflect the needs uh, that I have as, a, as somebody. In my case, I have a wife. I have children. My wage should, in some sense, reflect the needs that I have to care uh, for my family. All right, so let's go look at the chart on justice. And I, I didn't keep one for myself. So I'm sure there are extras around somewhere. Somebody's got a, oh, good. OK, so this was an extra? Yes. Oh, great. Thank you. OK. Fine, let's see how we're doing on time here. OK, good. So we'll look at our chart here. Then I'll uh, mention my point about 2446 and then, then Q&A here. So what I'm trying to visualize here in this chart is the lower half here is the kind of justice that 
any human being can cultivate. You don't need grace, you don't need revelation in order to cultivate this. And under this kind of justice, under this kind of virtue, is something called general justice. It's number six there on the chart. So general justice, here, let me, let me example this. Let's imagine that I um, eat uh, very frugally. You know, I don't indulge in too much food. And as a result of this, I have more food left over to give to others who are in need. My act of moderation or of temperance is directed toward the justice of the community. Okay, there's not an act of justice to eat less, but it's an act of moderation directed to the community, and that's called general justice. Commutative justice is that transaction. You and I enter into a transaction that we have to pay the just value for the object. So again, you have to think to yourself, where do the poor come in? The poor who supposedly I am robbing their goods if I, if I don't give to them. Not there either, does it seem. Distributive justice. Distributive justice would be that if the government, and this won't ever happen in your lifetime, so don't worry about it. Imagine the government has a surplus of money. They took in more money than they're going to spend. This is never going to happen, right? Um, then they've got to give them back and say, how are we going to do that? And if we had time, we could try to come up with examples of, you know, how would they determine? They say, well, how about this? Everybody gets the same amount back. And then somebody says, well, wait a minute. I paid $100,000 in taxes. He didn't pay anything in taxes. Shouldn't I get more than he does? Or I'm a veteran. Shouldn't I get more money than the person who's not a veteran? Or you know, various uh, principles. How do we decide how to give back those goods? Going now under these secondary virtues. These are kinds of justice. Piety toward your parents. Piety is directed toward parents, according to Aquinas. You owe it to your parents to honor them. You also owe it them to care for them materially at the end of their life if they don't have money to care for themselves. It is an injustice to your parents to fail to do that. Now, we have to be careful here, though, because you're not paying back your parents. Right? You can't say, well, my life was worth this much, you know, and you paid this much for school, so I'm going to pay it back. It's, it's, it's a sort of recognition of this is all I can do, the least I could do for you. Gratitude, that goes back to the tip, you know, that I owe it to you to be grateful for, for things that you've given to me. Um, I don't have obedience on here, but that'd be another one. We owe it to our government to obey. If you're in the military and you abandon your post, you're guilty of injustice, the injustice of inobedience. Um, liberality. Liberality is a kind of moral due. It's, it's, it's not a legal due. So we wouldn't think that the government could legally say, you owe it to be liberal, a generous giver. Generosity is another translation. But morally speaking, we do. We owe it to be generous to one another. So think of refugee camps. Or think of it this way. Do you ever drive by a construction site and there are five people and only two of them are working and you're like, oh, that's my money? When you and your friends or you and your family get together to work, are all five of you working at once? Probably not. <laughs> you probably recognize that when people get together to work, especially you know, backbreaking labor, it's really important to have lots of breaks. And there's a kind of generosity of acknowledging that, hey, we're going to have a work party and I'm not going to work you to death. You know, we're going to come over and we're going to paint my house, or we're going to do something, and we're going to have lots of breaks. And so as a kind of employer of those state workers, I want them to have the kind of generosity that I get when, you come, you know, when I come into your house and work. So liberality is something we owe it to each other in that sense. So in a refugee camp, I mean, imagine just saying, all we have to do is give them their food and water and shelter, and that's it. Nothing more do we owe them. That's, that's, not, that's not generous. 
These are things then that any good person of goodwill owes it. And the government, to some extent, should be trying to promote this, especially commutative justice and distributive justice. When we get to the infused virtues, now we're getting to charity. That charity directs us to be friends with all people. That we should treat everybody else in the way we would treat a friend, not just as sort of an impersonal stranger. Mercy and alms deeds. So mercy is actually the feeling of pity that one has at the suffering of another under the guidance of love. So according to Aquinas, mercy is not the actual act. You kind of think, oh, acts of mercy. Mercy is that interior feeling we have that leads to the acts of alms deeds. So what we call the corporal spiritual acts of mercy, Aquinas just calls them alms deeds. So it's just a different name for that. But next here, and this is where I want to get back to um, the catechism quote on 2446, is that if you look back at that passage, so go ahead and look at it again. Looked at in context, go back to page three. Notice what section of the catechism it's found in. Love for the poor. In the context of what we as Christians owe to the poor, our love, the catechism makes this claim about justice. And so as I'm interpreting this, what the catechism is saying is that the kind of justice that, you know, if you have too many coats in your closet, you're robbing, is the recognition of God's love for us, God's mercy on us, extended to others as an act of justice. So by saying that, what I'm indicating is that it's the job of the church and we as the members of the body of Christ, not the job of the government. Right? So you see that's an important distinction. If we say that what the church is talking about here is that kind of acquired justice that any human can have, then now we're in the realm of the government. But if we say instead what the church is calling for is Christians, organized in parishes and dioceses and monasteries and so forth, to practice the kind of justice that God mercifully gives to us. And that's a very different thing. It goes well beyond. So an example of this would be how do we distinguish between this kind of justice and the earthly justice? Is that what I would say in general is that it's not so much that they're distinct acts that we would perform. It might be that. But in one sense, we do the same things that those who are not Christians would do, but with a deeper motive. We do it out of love for God, right? So you can be, uh, I can be giving you your tip as a waitress. And whether I'm a Christian or not, I would acknowledge that's the right thing to do. But as a Christian, I'm doing it out of love for God and for you, my neighbor, in God. Another thing I think we could say is that charity is proactive. It seeks out. It anticipates. It looks for. So go back to the prodigal son example. I'm sorry, the um, good Samaritan. And what do you notice? He gives him two days wages to care for him at the end. We get the sense that he, you know, innkeepers don't do well in the New Testament, right? You know, they're generally seen as kind of shifty characters. If I don't give him this money, he'll just kind of care for him a little while and then just let him go on the street. He gives him two days wages, and then what does he say next? Anybody remember what he says as he's leaving? Right, so let's go back to the baby at the doorstep. Wouldn't this be just, just as a good human being that I say, boy, I can't care for this baby. You know, I'm 18 years old. I don't know what to do with a baby. But I can go to a hospital or an orphanage or someone who can, and that would be justice. But imagine I never think again about that baby. <laughs> I never check in on the baby. I'm just, oh, I, I did my duty, you know. 
That might be just, but it's not loving, is it? You know, that love anticipates the needs of others. Isn't it when we love somebody, we anticipate, boy, she would love this. You know, this would really make her happy. And so charity then goes beyond justice in in that sense of it, because it's kind of friendship. What would I want to, what do I do for a friend as distinct from just a a stranger? I can commit justice without caring about you at all. I'm just giving you what's owed. This is what I owe you. Uh, Whereas I can't be charitable in that way. Almsgiving as well, right? This is a kind of care for the poor that goes beyond that. So my interpretation, I got one more thing to say and then then I'll turn to you for questions, is that 2446 to some extent does refer to a legal obligation. That, That to some extent governments do want to reflect this, that everybody has basic needs met in some way. We've got to be very cautious there. It also is talking about a moral debt. Morally speaking, it is unjust if people in your community are going without and you're not helping them. But I think more importantly, it's referring to a divine debt. So, you know, what God has done for us, us extending to others, and to that extent, it comes from the body of Christ. One last thing I want to conclude, and then in questions, is um, so... After reading this on Sunday, and that's one of the great things about reading, uh, reading the Bible, is that things you didn't notice before stand out at you. And what stood out to me this time is that just after the reading of the Good Samaritan, what comes next in the Gospel of Luke? Anybody know what's the next? And it just jumps right to this next story. Can we recall what it is? Okay, good. I'm not alone then in saying I didn't know this until reading. It's the Martha and Mary story. So Jesus has just instructed them on what it means to be just and to be charitable. And we get the impression it's about going out and, you know, helping bandaging wounds. And then he comes to to Martha's house. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha says, you know, tell Mary to get out and help me. I'm doing all the housework. And she's sitting at your feet. What does Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better part. She is the most just. Now Martha gets her kind of Martha is the one that believes that Lazarus will be raised again, whereas Mary doesn't. That's a really interesting twist on that story, I think. But that Martha has not chosen the higher part. The best form of justice, the highest form of justice is divine worship. So if somebody said, I don't have time for worship because I have to go help the poor, or why do I need God? I'm a good person. I go and help the poor. You're not doing the most basic kind of justice, which is preparing your soul for reception for uh, the Eucharist and celebration of the the mysteries, as we we call them in in the East. The highest kind of justice is our relationship to God. So we never want to confuse that, that it's fine to go out and do these things. Yes, we are called to do that. But that can never be at the expense of your relationship with God. And another way of saying that for Aquinas is the act by which we love God is the same act by which we love our neighbor in God. We don't want to think it's like I have to choose between the two of them. When I was an undergrad, and this is just as I was in the process of converting, one of my uh, faculty members said this. It never, never, uh, never left me that... Um, unless you really have to believe that the monks and the nuns who live a contemplative life of prayer are doing more to help the world than those than you are by going into the soup kitchen. That it's not an either or, right? That these are both working to the same end. And that's so we've got to maintain that contemplative vision of what charity uh, really means ordered toward the beatific vision uh, with the angels and saints. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.